We're in conversation with Mr. David Verity, consultant ophthalmolic surgeon at Moorfields Eye Hospital in London, and something that I, I actually don't know what this is, and perhaps, David, before you even engage my question, please tell us what this is all about. Hospitola, or however that is pronounced, I've never seen this word, hospitola or hospitola in the most venerable order of the Hospital of St. John's of Jerusalem. Yes, it is quite a mouthful, I have to confess. Uh, what it really means is that they, the oldest non-governmental organization in the world, which is active in South Africa and elsewhere, is the Order of St. John, which has many other longer names, but we've shortened it to the Order of St. John. And as many of your listeners will be aware, it operates under the eight-pointed white cross, which mm-hmm. it is estimated about one in four people in the world have actually seen because it brings ambulance services and it brings first aid and teaching mm-hmm. and training. But it actually, this year is a very special year because it started in 1023 in Jerusalem where the uh, traders from the North Italian coast whose eight-pointed cross it was, they went to look after a hospital in Jerusalem. And from that point, uh, an order of monks was born um, whose job was to build hospitals and look after patients wherever they were. And that tradition has carried on, really, for the best part of really a 1,000 years, 1023, 2023. It is the longest non-governmental organization for good that helps people. And it has a really simple motto, which is to believe in better for people and then to make sure it happens. So that's also known as pro fide, pro utilitate, homine, hominem. But it really means believe in better, believe in a better outcome for people, and then work hard to deliver it. And so the hospitaler, it's a word you can either pronounce or spell, but probably not both because it's so confusing. But really it just means it's the medical conscience of the Order of St. John. But a lot of my work takes me back to Jerusalem in the Middle East, where we still have, we now have four hospitals and clinics. And a lot of my work is to bring opportunity to patients there in the West Bank and particularly in Gaza on the Mediterranean coast. And that's that's a very difficult community. So a lot of my work is driving forwards ophthalmology in a really difficult environment. But because the family of St. John, which really started or got going again and with much more vigor in 1882, it sprung up all around the world and it runs all the ambulance services that we know about. Uh, and so my job as a hospitaler is to really push forwards the ophthalmic side of it. And that's why I'm in South Africa at the moment to support the Priory of St. John in South Africa, which has been running now for well over 100 years, uh, and to bring some more recognition and more understanding of what they do for South Africans, which is um, a lot of screening and also referring patients through to eye hospitals and eye hospital doctors. Let's talk about that because ultimately it is here for good, no pun intended. Specifically, the aspects of intervening before there is damage inculcating a culture and a discipline and a lifestyle that is preventative, that maintains the health of the body and its organs before there is any form of deterioration and to the extent that the deterioration is inevitable for whatever the reason, the earliest possible intervention at that point takes place. In context of public health care, how does a society achieve that? What is the responsibility of government to the extent that it is a government responsibility? And then when does that charity begin at home? Well, uh, there are two parts to this, actually, because the first part is young children, if their eyes don't develop normally or if they if they have a droopy eyelid so they can't see clearly or maybe they need strong glasses, which they never get hold of, the eyeball is all right, but it doesn't communicate electronically with the brain. 
And that's pretty critical in the first uh, 10 years. And so if they don't have any underlying abnormality corrected, which may be simply a question of the right pair of glasses, to be honest, or if an eyelid's droopy because they were born with a droopy lid, if they don't have that corrected, then irrespective of what one does after the age of 10, they will never have good vision. So the first thing is always to have children's vision checked, usually at about four or five, because they've still got a good six or so years of um, visual maturation in the brain. And so if you were born with an eye that needed strong glasses, but you never had them, there's a good chance you'd, you'd grow with what they call a lazy eye. That's also called amblyopia. And sadly, there's nothing that can be done after that point. So that's really screening at a much younger age. Also, children whose eyes turn in or maybe they turn out, that's called a squint or strabismus. Again, that can be corrected at an early age. And there's no reason why that child shouldn't go on, have good stereopsis, that's 3D vision, and then play a really strong part socioeconomically in their environment. Whereas if they can't, they may not have 3D vision or they may have poor vision in each eye. And that has a huge impact on the family around them in all cultures because they become dependent on their families. So I think the first part is that, that screening young children to make sure at the age of four or five that they do have eyes developing normally. And so all governments, I think, uh, as best they can with the resources available, uh, should be making available this screening for, for four to five-year-olds. Uh, and then if there is a problem, regular checkups after that point. So that, that's just really the first part, that's screening young children. But even before that, uh, that assumes that the parent is sufficiently empowered to know or, or, or to have insights into this very conversation that you and I are having, because government is not in the home of a typical South African family setup. And in the result, best case scenario, even if the resources are available, the most critical aspect of the utility of the resource is people knowing that it is there and yeah. ought to be used. Yes, well, I'm afraid as humans, you know, we can be told to do things, but we don't always follow through, do we? But on the other hand, if, you know, if children are, by and large, going to school at that sort of age, starting maybe four or five, then certainly in the countries where I've worked, there tends to be a visual screening process built into the school program at that sort of age. Of course, the sadness comes if the child is not able to get to school or uh, the school doesn't have that visual screening program. And we're not talking about complicated technology here. Mm -hmm. We're literally saying, you know, what can the child see on the chart? And there's a limit, you know, they should be able to see you know, six nine or six six or so. And if they can't, then they should have a checkup with an optometrist. But you're absolutely right. How do you catch these 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 all of these children if they're not having it done through the school system, which is what many countries employ, because otherwise send a letter to the parents or communicate with them in some way. And we all know that probably fewer than fifty percent of those children will be screened. So really the only durable and reliable way of doing it is, is through the school programs, if possible. If possible, being a critical qualifier, because in the South Africa setup, uh, and, and you would know this quite with your history, first six years in South Africa, and you've been here quite a few times, at least in Cape Town and in Johannesburg, you would understand the social disparities, perhaps, that do pertain in South African homes and the racial skew that that follows. Not that this is a topic of that kind, but it is nonetheless a sure. reality. How sure. then, with that knowledge, which is, let, let us assume it is widely known out there, how do we catch those who are not in that school setup? How do we ensure even those who are in that school setup, but the school setup itself and the resources deployed to those schools in South Africa, we talk about quintiles, one, yes, two, I mean, that, three, that, that's four a, to that's five. A very difficult, that's a very difficult social question, isn't it? As difficult as saying sure. how do you reduce sugar intake or smoking 
you know, we've not we've not really cracked that one. It's there's no doubt. I mean, St. John, for example, has 10 optometry clinics, but that's a tiny, tiny number compared to the number that might be needed because they do offer they do offer these services at a much lower rate uh, to try to provide affordable screening to uh, to patients. Um, but really, this would have to go out with regular advice on whatever form of regular advertisements patients actually read. Now, how one would do this in this community, I'm not sure. I would have thought the way to get through to it is probably through to the mothers so that when the mother gives birth mm, or so, mm. they have a credit that allows them then, uh, perhaps this is daydreaming a little bit, if they had a credit that allowed them to have that child screened four years later, in an optometry clinic or they registered and said, if you turn up to one of these, here's your number, you get a free check. That would probably be a start because the actual cost of doing a free check is not really that high. It's But it's a lot higher if there is a problem and then that child can't see well. Precisely. It's, it's, not, yeah. it's, it's, it's not, not a talking barrier. a huge number of patients, but it can be devastating to the child because because no surgery and no intervention later will make much of a difference if they've got a droopy lid and it's not corrected on in time, you see. Be, be, because in any event, a four-year-old would not be, and the mother for that matter, unfamiliar with healthcare spaces. I mean, they're getting mm-hmm. the fever shots, they're getting the polio injections. Yes. They are more sickly than they will ever probably or hopefully be. So the mother and child, and perhaps in the South African context, we, we, we ought to also say, because it is an important social aspect, as we are now in, the parents, mother and father and the child, ought to be in any event engaging the whole spectrum of services available that ought to be, if you like, a checklist or a protocol because this is important. It's happening after four years and it's happening for the first 10 years to have that sort of detection of if there is a problem, it ought to be taken care of so that for the balance of the 60 years, assuming one lives up to 70, they don't have this sort of problem. Surely if you and I can come up with this sort of solution unprepared in a 10, 15 minute conversation, at a more scientific level, with proper resource planning and government and years and years of every government's track record in public health care, it, it, it can't be and shouldn't be that difficult. I mean, we've got some no, really sophisticated rollout programs in relation to interventions on HIV and AIDS and tuberculosis and now for the last three years, COVID. Surely this is not as high a barrier to entry, area to entry in the utility of the services or fragmentation of state resources and services to have this intervention becoming a norm no, as I, opposed to an outline. I, I don't think, no, and I don't think it is that difficult. I mean, of course, I'm, I don't know what level of screening currently exists, but there is no community where the screening is perfect, and that includes, by the way, the United Kingdom. So there is always more work to be done, and I guess the only way really is to couple this, or at least the reminder, to any other regular event that takes them to any government agency, mm-hmm. whether Coupling, it's vaccinations, yeah. health checks, you name it, one could be inventive. I don't know, the the car annual tax, it doesn't matter. But, you know, if you've got a child aged this lot, here is your voucher to get a free eye check in your region. These are the sort of things, because it's a lot cheaper in the long run to do that than to have to deal with the consequences later on. I can't, I'm not speaking from a perfect position of strength. Sure. I don't know the the rate of, of lazy eye, but, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be there because it is in every other society. And then I really do mean every other society. But then most societies, they, you know, the child hits four to five or so, and it's just a regular part of the school screening. But if it's not part of school screening, we then would have to couple it at some other juncture point mm. when those parents are inter- interacting with public services of one sort or other. And there has to be some sort of an incentive. 
you know, I mean, people respond to incentives and it's still cheaper to provide some sort of incentive, you know, you get your eyes checked. And if you need glasses, we'll provide those as well, for example. So they don't feel they're actually walking into a health system where they're going to end up being impoverished as a result, because that'll put people off going in the first place. Nah, so I think it's, it's that sort of thing. It's all about we all operate on an incentive. It just depends on what the, it doesn't have to be material, but it's some sort of advantage that comes to us. So if you say to the mother, look, you know, your family, you know, are going to be helping you in your old age, but the better they see, the better their income, the better they're able to support the whole family. Absolutely vital. You just have those regular checks and here it is, pitch up before the age of five, five and a half, that sort of thing. So, I mean, that's the way I'd look at it. But I do speak from a position of relative ignorance because I don't know the system. And I'm sure, of course, you have a system, mm, mm. Um, but it's just that no system is perfect and one can always tighten it up a little bit, particularly in the more challenging areas. I mean, there are places in the UK and elsewhere that have this, you know, battle with the same thing. I still see patients uh, in, in the UK, my regular practice, and they've got a lazy eye. And, you know, this was going on 50 years ago. I think it's tightening up, but I think you have to couple that need for a free eye check, a pair of glasses, because let's be honest, they're not that expensive, to some other event that they would go to or a reminder of how well that child will be able to help to look after the family later on if they've got good eyes. And, of course, that's not just the children, but it's also screening for adults yeah, later sure. on. Diabetes is a scourge of the modern day, I'm afraid, and it's so that the argument goes on to say, and by the way, you know, sugar is sugar is an absolute killer to a medic as, as well as smoking. And but, you know, you can say to people, don't drink sugar, don't smoke, but they're not going to unless you say, but if you don't, this is the quality. If you do stop, this is the quality of life and you'll actually your income will be better. You'll be more able to look after yourself and your family, etc. So one has to try to pull the right lever to make people think, yes, this is worth it for me, uh, because humans are like that. Um, and, and how you do it depends on the society that one's in. But don't get me wrong, it's just as difficult as, as in the UK as it is anywhere else. But this ongoing screening. So very simple example, go to an optician, they do that puffer test on the eye, it checks the pressure in the eye. It's like how much pressure in a football. If mm -hmm. you've got a little too much, it needs monitoring. And there are usually drops, which in a great majority of time can stop the pressure going up. And that patient's eyesight is protected forever. That's just one very simple example. Uh, the other one, uh, sugar is really the modern day major problem for us all it really impoverishes societies and therefore patients all patients particularly diabetic well diabetics mainly should have the back of the eye looked up and it takes about 10 minutes or so and it can be done with screening cameras that's something i do in, an, in israel uh, and gaza at an op at an optometry is that it literally just a, yeah they an optometrist i mean the optometrists are very skilled people they are not surgeons what they do is they're able to examine every aspect of the eye and some of the machinery available to us now and i was a lad it just didn't exist things called OCT scanners, fluorescein angiography, fundus photograph. You know, this is usually available at, you know, your general optician or good optometrist. And it does not have to be that expensive. It's just that to society, it's more expensive in the long, long run if you don't do it. But that, of course, there's a political element there because it's hard to say to a politician that the society is better off 20 years later when every politician's term is always X number of years and X is less than 20. So therein lies the problem. So therefore, one has to actually say to the family, look, you will be better off if you do this. And there has to be some sort of local incentive or at least giving them a free eye check if they're diabetic or if a first degree relative has had glaucoma, then they get a free eye check. I think that's what we have in the UK over, over a certain age. You get a free eye check if you've got a first degree relative. With I shall certainly follow up on this conversation in relation to the interventions that are, first of all, out there, because sometimes these things are out there. It's just that the information doesn't necessarily redound to where really it ought to be. But that all said, we do have a voice note from one of our listeners who wishes to engage this conversation. Good evening, Songeza. Yeah, this is Timmy from Weedbank. Man, 
Mine is very simple. Um, I'd like to know if you grew up wearing glasses, let's say from the age of five, six to seven, and then you stop wearing glasses. Then after a long time, a very, very long time without wearing glasses, can that affect you? Or should you continue wearing glasses and you see nothing wrong with your eyes? Well, that is a good question, isn't it? Because I was there myself. I remember being in Baputatswana, and I remember going to church, and I couldn't see the number of the hymns on the church board, and I was a little boy, age six or seven, and my parents kept pushing me to the front pew, and then somebody, my father, who's actually a GP, said, Tommy had him seen by an eye doctor. And so that is my story, actually, and I wore glasses. But your point is a very good one. If you wear glasses during that maturative phase, because humans are not fully matured, after, until quite some time after birth, obviously. Uh, if you wear glasses for that first phase and you have good vision, whether you do or don't wear glasses after that probably doesn't make a big difference. Now, it might make you more risky on the roads and it might make you more prone to having an accident perhaps, but it is unlikely that you would cause yourself damage any at all by not wearing glasses after that point. And sometimes the wrong pair of glasses can give you a headache, but it seems to be a, a, a mistruth that is hard to debunk if you wear the wrong pair of glasses, it, it, it harms you. No, it, it doesn't harm you at all. But if you do need them up to the age of 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 or so, then you do need them. And sometimes teenagers do. But if you throw away your glasses after that um, or you feel you don't need them, you won't you won't do yourself any harm. And it's, there's a feeling that you've, you've absolutely got to. But the answer is no, you don't. If they're not right, you might get a headache from them. And if you can't see well, you know, you're more prone to other sort of uh, domestic and, and, and accidents outside potentially. And that, of course, is why people should wear glasses, particularly, obviously, when they're driving or operating heavy uh, mm. machinery. Here's one final question from one of our listeners, Ramiz. Good evening, SAFM. I am a male, 28-year-old. In both my eyes, I have severe cornea scarring, and I have absolutely no funds to do anything about my condition. You're talking to Mr. David. I really need help. Please assist me. He goes on to say, I did go to a specialist in Johannesburg at the eye hospital, and they recommended cross-linking, etc. Yes. Yes. What this is, what we're talking about here is a congenital condition where the front shape of the cornea, instead of being like a perfect like football, is very, very, very slightly like a rugby ball. It's called keratoconus. And there is a, a non-interventional technique where they just tighten up the cornea a bit. It's not a painful thing to do, and it just turns that front shape of the cornea from being very subtly pointy, you, you can't tell except with a machine, to make it slightly more rounded and giving good vision. Um, so they could probably improve the vision. If there is serious scarring as well, if it's really serious, and certainly my colleagues in Johannesburg, I've got lots of colleagues right through Johannesburg, Pretoria, Baraguanus, and what have you, can give a really good corneal opinion on that. But the cross-linking is a very up-to-date modern technique, and if somebody feels that's indicated, they're obviously on the right track, and it would probably be sensible to consider it. Let's talk about adults. I mean, I know the conversation has largely engaged the 0 to 10 years of age and the critical interventions within that span of time, but we have a 28-year-old who has that challenge. There are many people sitting, listening to this conversation who probably have never visited an optometrist because for so long as they can see, the perception anyway goes that my eyes are fine. And because no one has or generally wouldn't be in a position to compare what one's yeah. eyesight should be versus what it exactly. is, yeah. the assumption carries that I am fine, whereas there's a degeneration happening. And you did say when the horse has bolted, the horse has bolted. What well, then? We, never miss, we, we, don't, we don't know. We never, it, it's, it's a very 
ten, te tempting question. How do, how do other people see the world? We only know how we see the world. And if you grow up with a certain level of vision, it's a natural assumption that everybody sees the world like that. Why wouldn't you? Mm. Um, but it may well be there are very simple things to correct, congenital cataract, for example, myopia, meaning short-sighted, long-sighted. So you wouldn't know. And that's exactly why it's worth going to see an optometrist if one can do from time to time, because a lot of it's done automatically by machinery that just reads out a whole bunch of metrics uh, that tells you that you're basically safe. And yes, your vision is what you'd anticipate for that particular age or what have you. So it is actually quite important to go and have it checked up because I've got so many patients in London. I say, look, if you were to go and get a pair of glasses, you're going to see two or three lines more on the chart. They said, oh, I never knew that. And so it's worth seeing somebody because at least they can talk you through what's possible. And an optometrist is just as good at that as anybody else. It doesn't need to be an eye doctor because obviously there's fear of them and it, it might be more expensive to see them. So it is actually pretty important to go and see an optometrist or one that you trust or like. Um, if you happen to live near a St. John optometry clinic, of course, there's 10 around the country. Just Google St. John, South Africa. You know, that would be one to go and see because they're not there to make profit. And St. John's not about making profit. It's about helping people. Um, so that's one option. But I mean, 10 a tiny number, but they are well spread right throughout South, South Africa if they can find one. But it is worth it because one never knows that what, if one, what one has is what one should have. And there are very simple techniques that tell us these days. And that's why it's worth having. Look, you don't need to do it every year, but it's worth doing it every few years if you can. Sure. Let's take a very short ad break. We will engage one or two voice notes stroke text messages that have come through, David, after which we'll say our thanks to you and you'll be merrily off. The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. We do have a caller, a long-lost friend. I welcome her back on air. Tobega in Durban, incidentally, where David just was very recently, where he spent the first six years of his life. So you guys can have a homeboy, homegirl conversation. Tobega, welcome on air. Hi, how are you? Oh, well, ma'am. Join us, please. Thank you. Um, sorry, um, hello to Dr. Ter um, Verity. I have got a question for you. Um, I'm visually impaired. Uh, I'm actually declared legally blind. So my understanding is that I don't have enough like sight to function like independently. But there are questions that I do have because my own condition was caused by chronic raised intracranial pressure, which my younger sister had as well. So among the things that I presented with were um, pale discs. I never really understood what that is. But um, obviously, in pursuit of maybe possibly regaining my sight earlier on, um, I signed on for things like I was pre-approved for um, electric stimulation. I'm not sure whether you're familiar with the Federal Eye Institute. So I just want to understand what treatment is there for a person with pale discs. I do have, like, it actually scares me sometimes. Yeah, I get flashes of sight. I can see a picture of something, or I can see, like, my computer screen when it goes off. Then every now and again, like every now day, I have like 20 of those. So then what is the, what treatment can a person like myself undergo? I have had eye injections for uh, like a protracted period. So I'm just wanting to know what a person like myself can do if they need things. Yes, well, first of all, I'm very sorry to hear about your visual impairment. And uh, it's always sad when you, when, when you meet somebody who's struggling like that. So I'm sorry about that. Yeah. And secondly, it sounds like you have something that's called so-called benign, but it isn't, intracranial hypertension, uh, where the fluid that bathes around our brain and our spinal cord, which is called cerebrospinal fluid, it also oh. bathes the optic nerves. And if there's a problem with the 
production and natural absorption of this fluid, it's a little bit like having a bit too much oil in an engine. It, the pressure of that fluid can have a mm -hmm. slow effect on the optic nerves, and so the visual fields come down. And ultimately what happens is that all the little nerves that run forwards and backwards in the, in the, in the optic nerve will run from the retina back to the brain. If they've been under pressure for a long time, they tend to stop working oh. quite so well. And what that means is that one might be able to see straight ahead somewhat, but one certainly can't see things in the periphery. And that's called a visual field defect. And the critical thing, thing for that is just to make sure that the intracranial pressure is kept as well controlled as possible and to have visual field tests. But of course, it rather depends on how severe the disease has been up to that point, because if the visual fields are quite poor, and if the optic discs are pale, and, and that means that the nerve no longer has the sort of functioning neurons, which is the electrics, then because the eye is such an advanced structure, it, it never really recovers from that in a way if we injured our muscle or our knee or our leg, you know, we would recover from that. So it's a sadness that if the if the if the optic nerve has taken pressure over years, uh, then there's mm. very little one can do other than try to make sure that the intracranial pressure or the pressure of the CSF cerebrospinal fluid is as well controlled as possible. That's obviously something the neurologists take uh, control of. So although it does mm. present with eye symptoms in our patients, it's not really the eye doctor that's primarily involved in looking after that. That's something the neurologist looks at checks the visual fields and checks the color vision to try to stabilize things. But sadly, we don't yet have a way to make those nerves regenerate. There's a lot of work that's been done with stem cells to try to make little cells go back and repopulate other structures that have died back. But if the optic nerve is pale, it really means that no, sadly no recovery from that point is possible. But so important that a neurologist or a neurosurgeon, depends who one sees, he keeps the pressure or maintains normal CSF pressure. Uh, there are some tablets, I think, that can occasionally help. There are, of course, uh, low vision aids. That's really important, but it sadly doesn't restore the vision if it's got to that point. Let's leave it there. David, thank you so much for your time. I'm instructed by the production team to blow you a kiss, so refreshing your thoughts have been. So <laughs> take that as well, that. Thank you very much for your time, dear brother. We do appreciate your indulgence. It's been a great privilege for me to, to, to help work with South Africans. It really is. And thank you so much for inviting me. And please, when you are back in the country, you let us know there's a seat ready for you at any time. I will take up this office. Thank you so much. Thank you. Indeed. 2148, Dr. David Verity, consultant, ophthalmic surgeon at Moorfields Eye Hospital in London. He's one of our own, a true South African at heart.